Chapter Eight of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova. Episode Two, Cleric in Naples. Chapter Eight. The retinue of the ambassador, which was styled grand, appeared to me very small. It was composed of a Milanese steward named Carcinelli, of a priest who fulfilled the duties of secretary because he could not write, of an old woman acting as housekeeper, of a man cook with his ugly wife, and eight or ten servants. We reached Chiozza about noon. Immediately after landing, I politely asked the steward where I should put up, and his answer was, "Wherever you please, provided you let this man know where it is, so that he can give you notice when the peota is ready to sell." My duty, he added, is to leave you at the lazaretto of Ancona, free of expense from the moment we leave this place. Until then, enjoy yourself as well you can. The man to whom I was to give my address was the captain of the Peota. I asked him to recommend me a lodging. "You may come to my house," he said, "if you have no objection to share a large bed with the cook, whose wife remains on board." Unable to devise any better plan, I accepted the offer, and the sailor, carrying my trunk, accompanied me to the dwelling of the honest captain. My trunk. Had to be placed under the bed, which filled up the room. I was amused at this, for I was not in a position to be over fastidious, and after partaking of some dinner at the inn, I went about the town. Chiozza is a peninsula, a seaport belonging to Venice, with a population of ten thousand inhabitants, seamen, fishermen, merchants, lawyers, and government clerks. I entered the coffee room, and I had scarcely taken a seat when a young doctor at law, with whom I had studied in Padua, came up to me, and introduced me to a druggist whose shop was nearby, saying that his house was the rendezvous of all the literary men of the place. A few minutes afterwards, a tall Jacobin friar, blind of one eye, called Corsini, whom I had known in Venice, came in and paid me many compliments. He told me that I had arrived just in time to go to a picnic got up by the macaronic academicians for the next day, after a sitting of the academy in which every member was to recite something of his composition. He invited me to join them, and to gratify the meeting with the delivery of one of my productions. I accepted the invitation, and, after the reading of ten stanzas. Which I had written for the occasion, I was unanimously elected a member. My success at the picnic was still greater, for I disposed of such a quantity of macaroni that I was found worthy of the title of Prince of the Academy. The young doctor, himself one of the academicians, introduced me to his family. His parents, who were in easy circumstances, received me very kindly. 
One of his sisters was very amiable, but the other, a professed nun, appeared to me a prodigy of beauty. I might have enjoyed myself in a very agreeable way in the midst of that charming family during my stay in Kielce, but I suppose that it was my destiny to meet in that place with nothing but sorrows. The young doctor forewarned me that the monk Corsini was a very worthless fellow, despised by everybody, and advised me to avoid him. I thanked him for the information, but my thoughtlessness prevented me from profiting by it. Of a very easy disposition, and too giddy to fear any snares, I was foolish enough to believe that the monk would, on the contrary, be the very man to throw plenty of amusement in my way. On the third day, the worthless dog took me to a house of ill fame, where I might have gone without his introduction, and in order to shew my mettle, I obliged a low creature whose ugliness ought to have been a sufficient antidote against any fleshy desire. On leaving the place, he brought me for supper to an inn, where we met four scoundrels of his own stamp. After supper, one of them began a bank of faro, and I was invited to join in the game. I gave way to that feeling of false pride which so often causes the ruin of young men, and after losing four sequins, I expressed the wish to retire. But my honest friend, the Jacobin, contrived to make me risk four more sequins in partnership with him. He held the bank, and it was broken. I did not wish to play any more, but Corsini, feigning to pity me and to feel great sorrow at being the cause of my loss, induced me to try myself a bank of twenty-five sequins. My bank was likewise broken. The hope of winning back my money made me keep up the game, and I lost everything I had. Deeply grieved, I went away and laid myself down near the cook, who woke up and said I was a libertine. "'You're right,' was all I could answer. I was worn out with fatigue and sorrow, and I slept soundly. My vile tormentor, the monk, woke me at noon, and informed me, with a triumphant joy, that a very rich young man had been invited by his friends to supper, that he would be sure to play and lose, and that it would be a good opportunity for me to retrieve my losses. I have lost all my money. Lend me twenty sequins. When I lend the money I am sure to lose, you may call it superstitious, but I have tried it too often. Try to find money somewhere else and come. Farewell. I felt ashamed to confess my position to my friend, and sending for a money-lender, I emptied my trunk before him. We made an inventory of my clothes, and the honest broker gave me thirty sequins, with the understanding that if I did not redeem them within three days, all my things would become his property. I am bound to call him an honest man, for he advised me to keep three shirts, a few pair of stockings, and a few handkerchiefs. I was disposed to let him take everything, having a presentiment that I would win back all I had lost, a very common error. A few years later, I took my revenge by writing a diatribe against presentiments. I am of opinion that the only foreboding in which man can have of any sort of faith 
is the one which forebodes evil, because it comes from the mind, while a presentiment of happiness has its origin in the heart, and the heart is a fool worthy of reckoning foolishly upon fickle fortune. I did not lose any time in joining the honest company, which was alarmed at the thought of not seeing me. Supper went off without any allusion to gambling, but my admirable qualities were highly praised, and it was decided that a brilliant fortune awaited me in Rome. After supper there was no talk of play, but giving way to my evil genius, I loudly asked for my revenge. I was told that if I would take the bank, every one would punt. I took the bank, lost every sequin I had, and retired begging the monk to pay what I owed to the landlord, which he promised to do. I was in despair, and to crown my misery, I found out, as I was going home, that I had met the day before with another living specimen of the Greek woman, less beautiful, but as perfidious. I went to bed stunned by my grief, and I believe that I must have fainted into a heavy sleep, which lasted eleven hours, my awaking was that of a miserable being, hating the light of heaven, of which he felt himself unworthy, and I closed my eyes again, trying to sleep for a little while longer. I dreaded to rouse myself up entirely, knowing that I would then have to take some decision, but I never once thought of returning to Venice, which would have been the very best thing to do, and I would have destroyed myself rather than confide my sad position to the young doctor. I was weary of my existence, and I entertained vaguely some hope of starving where I was, without leaving my bed. It is certain that I should not have got up if Mr. Alban, the master of the peota, had not roused me by calling upon me and informing me that the boat was ready to sail. The man who is delivered from great perplexity, no matter by what means, feels himself relieved. It seemed to me that Captain Alban had come to point out the only thing I could possibly do. I dressed myself in haste, and tying all my worldly possessions in a handkerchief, I went on board. Soon afterwards we left the shore, and in the morning we cast anchor in Orsara, a seaport of Istria. We all landed to visit the city, which would more properly be called a village. It belongs to the Pope, the Republic of Venice having abandoned it to the Holy See. A young monk of the Order of the Recollects, who called himself Friar Stefano of Belun, and had obtained a free passage from the devout Captain Alban, joined me as we landed and inquired whether I felt sick. Reverend Father, I am unhappy. You will forget all your sorrow if you will come and dine with me at the house of one of our devout friends. I had not broken my fast for thirty-six hours, and having suffered much from sea-sickness during the night, my stomach was quite empty. My erratic inconvenience made me very uncomfortable. My mind felt deeply the consciousness of my degradation, and I did not possess a groat. I was in such a miserable state that I had no strength to accept or to refuse anything. 
I was thoroughly torpid, and I followed the monk mechanically. He presented me to a lady, saying that he was accompanying me to Rome, where I intend to become a Franciscan. This untruth disgusted me, and under any other circumstance I would not have let it pass without protest, but in my actual position it struck me as rather comical. The good lady gave us a good dinner of fish cooked in oil, which in Orsara is delicious, and we drank some exquisite rufosco. During our meal, a priest happened to drop in, and after a short conversation, he told me that I ought not pass the night on board the tartan, and pressed me to accept a bed in his house and a good dinner for the next day, in case the wind should not allow us to sail. I accepted without hesitation. I offered my most sincere thanks to the good old lady, and the priest took me all over the town. In the evening, he brought me to his house, where we partook of an excellent supper prepared by his housekeeper, who sat down to the table with us, and with whom I was much pleased. The refusco, still better than that which I had drunk at dinner, scattered all my misery to the wind, and I conversed gaily with the priest. He offered to read to me a poem of his own composition, but feeling that my eyes would not keep open, I begged he would excuse me and postpone the reading until the following day. I went to bed, and in the morning, after ten hours of the most profound sleep, the housekeeper, who had been watching for my awakening, brought me some coffee. I thought her a charming woman, but alas, I was not in a fit state to prove to her the high estimation in which I held her beauty. Entertaining feelings of gratitude for my kind host, and disposed to listen attentively to his poem, I dismissed all sadness, and I paid his poetry such compliments that he was delighted, and, finding me much more talented than he had judged me to be at first, he insisted upon treating me to a reading of his idols, and I had to swallow them, bearing the inflection cheerfully. The day passed off very agreeably. The housekeeper surrounded me with the kindest attentions, approved that she was smitten with me, and giving way to that pleasing idea, I felt that, by a very natural system of reciprocity, she had made my conquest. The good priest thought that the day had passed like lightning, thanks to all the beauties that I had discovered in his poetry, which, to speak the truth, was below mediocrity. But time seemed to me to drag along very slowly, because the friendly glances of the housekeeper made me long for bedtime, in spite of the miserable condition in which I felt myself morally and physically. But such was my nature. I abandoned myself to joy and happiness, when, had I been more reasonable, I ought to have sunk under my grief and sadness. But the golden time came at last. I found the pretty housekeeper full of compliance, but only up to a certain point, and as she offered some resistance when I shewed myself disposed to pay a full homage to her charms, I quietly gave up the undertaking very well pleased for both of us that it had not been carried any further, and I sought my couch in peace. But I had not seen the end of the adventure, for the next morning 
when she brought my coffee. Her pretty, enticing manners allured me to bestow a few loving caresses upon her, and if she did not abandon herself entirely, it was only, as she said, because she was afraid of some surprise. The day passed on very pleasantly with the good priest, and at night, the housekeeper no longer fearing detection, and I having on my side taking every precaution necessary in the state in which I was, we passed two most delicious hours. I left Orsara the next morning. Friar Stefano amused me all day with his talk, which plainly showed me his ignorance combined with knavery under the veil of simplicity. He made me look at the alms he had received in Orsara, bread, wine, cheese, sausages, preserves, and chocolate. Every nook and cranny of his holy garment was full of provisions. "'Have you received money likewise?' I inquired. "'God forbid! In the first place, our glorious order does not permit me to touch money. And, in the second place, were I to be foolish enough to receive any when I am begging, people would think themselves quit of me with one or two sous.' whilst they dive me ten times as much in eatables. Believe me, St. Francis was a very judicious man. I bethought myself that what this monk called wealth would be poverty to me. He offered to share with me, and seemed very proud at my consenting to honour him so far. The tartan touched at the harbour of Pola, called Beruda, and we landed. After a walk up the hill of nearly a quarter of an hour, we entered the city, and I devoted a couple of hours to visiting the Roman antiquities, which are numerous, the town having been the metropolis of the empire. Yet I saw no other trace of grand buildings except the ruins of the arena. We returned to Veruda, and went again to sea. On the following day we sighted Ancona, but, the wind being against us, we were compelled to tack about, and we did not reach the port till the second day. The harbour of Ancona, although considered one of the great works of Trajan, would be very unsafe if it were not for a causeway which has cost a great deal of money, and which makes it somewhat better. I observed a fact worthy of notice, namely, that in the Adriatic, the northern coast has many harbours, while the opposite coast can only boast one or two. It is evident that the sea is retiring by degrees towards the east, and what in three or four more centuries, Venice must be joined to the land. We landed at the old lazaretto, where we received the pleasant information that we would go through a quarantine of twenty-eight days, because Venice had admitted after a quarantine of three months, the crew of two ships from Messina, where the plague had recently been raging. I requested a room for myself and for Brother Stefano, who thanked me very heartily. I hired from a Jew a bed, a table, and a few chairs, promising to pay for the hire at the expiration of our quarantine. The monk would have nothing but straw. If he had guessed that without him I might have starved, he would most likely not have felt so much vanity at sharing my room. 
a sailor, expecting to find in me a generous customer, came to inquire where my trunk was, and hearing from me that I did not know, he, as well as Captain Alban, went to a great deal of trouble to find it, and I could hardly keep down my merriment when the captain called, begging to be excused for having left it behind, and assuring me that he would take care to forward it to me in less than three weeks. The friar, who had to remain with me four weeks, expected to live at my expense, while, on the contrary, he had been sent by providence to keep me. He had provisions enough for one week, but it was necessary to think of the future. After supper, I drew a most affecting picture of my position, showing that I would be in need of everything until my arrival at Rome, where I was going, I said, to fill the post of Secretary of Memorials, and my astonishment may be imagined when I saw the blockhead delighted at the recital of my misfortunes. I undertake to take care of you until we reach Rome, only tell me whether you can write. What a question! Are you joking? Why should I? Look at me. I cannot write anything but my name. True, I can write it with either hand, and what else do I want to know? You astonish me greatly, for I thought you were a priest. I am a monk. I say the Mass, and, as a matter of course, I must know how to read. St. Francis, whose unworthy son I am, could not read, and that is the reason why he never said a Mass. But as you can write, you will tomorrow pen a letter in my name to the person whose name I will give you, and I warrant you we shall have enough sent here to live like fighting cocks all through our quarantine. The next day he made me write eight letters, because, in the oral tradition of his order, it is said that when a monk has knocked at seven doors and has met with a refusal at every one of them, he must apply to the eight with perfect confidence, because there he is certain of receiving alms. As he had already performed the pilgrimage to Rome, he knew every person in Ancona devoted to the cult of St. Francis, and was acquainted with the superiors of all the rich convents. I had to write to every person he named, and to set down all the lies he dictated to me. He likewise made me sign the letters for him, saying that, if he signed himself, his correspondence would see that the letters had not been written by him, which would injure him, for, he added, in this age of corruption, people will esteem only learned men. He compelled me to fill the letters with Latin passages and quotations, even those addressed to ladies, and I remonstrated in vain, for when I raised any objection, he threatened to leave me without anything to eat. I made up my mind to do exactly as he wished. He desired me to write to the superior of the Jesuits that he would not apply to the Capuchins, because they were no better than atheists, and that that was the reason of the great dislike of St. Francis for them. It was in vain that I reminded him of the fact that in the time of St. Francis there were neither Capuchins nor Recollets. His answer was, that I had proved myself an ignoramus. I firmly believed that he would be thought a madman, 
and that we should not receive anything. But I was mistaken, for such a quantity of provisions came pouring in that I was amazed. Wine was sent from three or four different quarters, more than enough for us during all our stay, and yet I drank nothing but water. So great was my wish to recover my health. As for eatables, enough was sent in every day for six persons. We gave all our surplus to our keeper, who had a large family. But the monk felt no gratitude for the kind souls who bestowed their charity upon him, and all his thanks were reserved for St. Francis. He undertook to have my men washed by the keeper. I would not have dared to give it myself. And he said that he had nothing to fear, as everybody was well aware that the monks of his order never wear any kind of linen. I kept myself in bed nearly all day, and thus avoided showing myself to visitors. The persons who did not come wrote letters full of incongruities cleverly worded, which I took good care not to point out to him. It was with great difficulty that I tried to persuade him that those letters did not require an answer. A fortnight of repose and severe diet brought me round towards complete recovery, and I began to walk in the yard of the lazaretto from morning till night. But the arrival of a Turk from Thessalonia with his family compelled me to suspend my walks, the ground floor having been given to him. The only pleasure left me was to spend my time on the balcony overlooking the yard. I soon saw a Greek slave, a girl of dazzling beauty, for whom I felt the deepest interest. She was in the habit of spending the whole day sitting near the door with a book or some embroidery in her hand. If she happened to raise her eyes and to meet mine, she modestly bent her head down, and sometimes she rose and went in slowly, as if she meant to say, I did not know that somebody was looking at me. Her figure was tall and slender. Her features proclaimed her to be very young. She had a very fair complexion, with beautiful black hair and eyes. She wore the Greek costume, which gave her person a certain air of very exciting voluptuousness. I was perfectly idle, and with the temperament which nature and habit had given me, was it likely that I could feast my eyes constantly upon such a charming object without falling desperately in love? I have heard her conversing in lingua franca with her master, a fine old man, who, like her, felt very weary of the quarantine, and used to come out but seldom, smoking his pipe, and remaining in the yard only a short time. I felt a great temptation to address a few words to the beautiful girl, but I was afraid she might run away and never come out again. However, unable to control myself any longer, I determined to write to her. I had no difficulty in conveying the letter, as I had only to let it fall from my balcony. But she might have refused to pick it up, and this is the plan I adopted in order not to risk any unpleasant result. Availing myself of a moment during which she was alone in the yard, I dropped from my balcony a small piece of paper folded like a letter, but had taken care not to write anything on it, and held the true letter in my hand. 
as soon as I saw her stooping down to pick up the first, I quickly let the second drop at her feet, and she put both into her pocket. A few minutes afterwards she left the yard. My letter was somewhat to this effect. Beautiful angel from the east, I worship you. I will remain all night on this balcony, in the hope that you will come to me for a quarter of an hour, and listen to my voice through the hole under my feet. We can speak softly, and in order to hear me, you can climb up to the top of the bale of goods which lies beneath the same hole. I begged from my keeper not to lock me in, as he did every night, and he consented on condition that he would watch me, for if I had jumped down in the yard his life might have been the penalty, and he promised not to disturb me on the balcony. At midnight, as I was beginning to give her up, she came forward. Then I laid myself flat on the floor of the balcony, and I placed my head against the hole, about six inches square. I saw her jump on the bell, and her hand reach within a foot from the balcony. She was compelled to steady herself with one hand against the wall for fear of falling, and in that position we talked of love, of ardent desires, of obstacles, of impossibilities, and of cunning artifices. I told her the reason for which I dared not jump down in the yard, and she observed that, even without that reason, it would bring ruin upon us, as it would be impossible to come up again, and that besides, God alone knew what her master would do if he were to find us together. Then, promising to visit me this way every night, she passed her hand through the hole. Alas, I could not leave off kissing it, for I thought that I had never in my life touched so soft, so delicate a hand. But what bliss when she begged for mine! I quickly thrust my arm through the hole, so that she could fasten her lips to the bend of the elbow. How many sweet liberties my hands ventured to take! But we were at last compelled by prudence to separate, and when I returned to my room, I saw with great pleasure that the keeper was fast asleep. Although I was delighted at having obtained every favour I could possibly wish for in the uncomfortable position we had been in, I raked my brain to contrive the means of securing more complete enjoyment for the following night. But I found, during the afternoon, that the feminine cunning of my beautiful Greek was more fertile than mine. Being alone in the yard with her master, she had a few words to him in Turkish, to which he seemed to give his approval, and soon after a servant, assisted by the keeper, brought under the balcony a large basket of goods. She overlooked the arrangement, and in order to secure the basket better, she made the servant place a bale of cotton across two others. Guessing at her purpose, I fairly leaped for joy, for she had found a way of raising herself two feet higher, but I thought that she would then find herself in the most inconvenient position, and that, forced to bend double, she would not be able to resist the fatigue. The hole was not wide enough for her head to pass through, otherwise she might have stood erect and been comfortable. It was necessary, at all events, to guard against that difficulty, 
the only way was to tear out one of the planks of the floor of the balcony, but it was not an easy undertaking. Yet I decided upon attempting it, regardless of the consequences, and I went to my room to provide myself with a large pair of pincers. Luckily, the keeper was absent, and availing myself of the opportunity, I succeeded in dragging out carefully the four large nails which fastened the plank. Finding that I could lift it at my will, I replaced the pincers and waited for the night with amorous impatience. The darling girl came exactly at midnight, noticing the difficulty she experienced in climbing up and in getting a footing on the third bale of cotton. I lifted the plank and, extending my arm as far as I could, I offered her a steady point of support. She stood straight and found herself agreeably surprised for she could pass her head and her arms through the hole. We wasted no time in empty compliments. We only congratulated each other upon having both worked for the same purpose. If the night before I had found myself master of her person more than she was of mine, this time the position was entirely reversed. Her hand roamed freely over every part of my body, but I had to stop halfway down hers. She cursed the man who had packed her bell for not having made it half a foot bigger, so as to get nearer to me. Very likely, even that would have not satisfied us, but she would have felt happier. Our pleasures were barren, yet we kept up our enjoyment until the first streak of light. I put back the plank carefully, and I lay down in my bed in great need of recruiting my strength. My dear mistress had informed me that the Turkish Bayram began that very morning, and would last three days, during which it would be impossible for her to see me. The night after Bayram, she did not fail to make her appearance, and, saying that she could not be happy without me, she told me that, as she was a Christian woman, I could buy her, if I waited for her after leaving the lazaretto. I was compelled to tell her that I did not possess the means of doing so, and my confession made her sigh. On the following night she informed me that her master would sell her for two thousand piastres, that she would give me the amount, and that she was yet a virgin, and that I would be pleased with my bargain. She added that she would give me a casket full of diamonds, one of which was alone worth two thousand piastres and that the sale of the others would place us beyond the reach of poverty for the remainder of our life. She assured me that her master would not notice the loss of the casket, and that, if he did, he would never think of accusing her. I was in love with that girl, and her proposal made me uncomfortable. But when I woke in the morning, I did not hesitate any longer. She brought the casket in the evening, but I told her that I never could make up my mind to be accessory to a robbery. She was very unhappy, and said that my love was not as deep as her own, but that she could not help admiring me for being so good a Christian. End of Part A of Chapter 8